Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. Shana Tova to those of you who celebrate the Jewish New Year. And uh, welcome. Thanks so much for spending your, your Monday evening here at New York Insight with me and the crew. It's always kind of um, an interesting experience for me as a speaker or teacher to sit here and kind of listen to the resume. Um, And it makes sense because, you know, if you don't know me, it's kind of helpful to just hear a little bit about my background or what I do. Uh, and yet this, this, this practice really goes uh, kind of counter to that whole world of, you know, and like all the little accolades and the titles and uh, which is so much the structure of our society, right? Like, who are you and what do you do? And that sense that how much you have in your bank account or how many degrees or letters you have after your name determines our value. And so this whole path, this whole practice is actually about encountering ourself and this life in a much more uh, open and raw way to discover uh, who we are without all of the narratives. So we'll, uh, we'll start our evening with a little bit of meditation practice. Is there anyone here who's new or new-ish to meditation? Raise your hand. Okay, great. So you have an advantage because um, you come with beginner's mind, which is the whole point. So um, in some sense, if we're meditating correctly, all of our hands would go up. Right, because every moment is unknown, every moment is new. So we'll do some meditation together, then we'll take a short break, um, and then come back for uh, um, some reflections and uh, end the evening with a little bit of uh, Q uh, and A and dialogue. to practice together. The room got really quiet, huh? Yeah. Uh, as Vivian and, and Rachel mentioned, I, uh, I lugged a box of my books from Jersey over here, so um, if you'd like to pick up a copy of uh, Say What You Mean, which explores how to bring this uh, silent internal practice into our relationships and conversations. Um, there's some on the back table and Rachel will be hanging out over there to answer questions or help with that. Um, and then there's also an email list. So if you want to stay in touch, that's the best way to do that. And when you sign up, if you're not on my email list already, you get a free guided meditation series and a short ebook uh, on contemplative practice. So the, the topic for our our evening is insight and resilience in times of change. So, um, so let's start with change. 
We all know that everything changes. This is not news to any of us. Uh, how do we, you know? How do we deal with change? So we see we see changes in our personal life all the time, and then obviously as a as a species, as a as a society and a species, we're living through lots of changes right now. This time in history, uh, so they're collective changes that are happening. And um, I think it's an important question to, to consider uh, for ourselves individually and collectively, how do we respond when things, when there's, when there's a lot of change and, and what helps us to handle it with, with skill, with balance, with some grace? Um, what supports our ability to, to flex with change, to be with it and to respond, to respond skillfully? So there's a, a story that I that I like from um, I think it's from Korea, from a teacher, a student and teacher, and the student comes to the teacher and says, as a great um, Chan master, and says, "What is what is enlightenment? What is the nature of enlightenment?" It's a good question. So you know you're expecting, well, what's the answer going to be? Is it some kind of deep mystical? mind-blowing, you know, thing or some mysterious poetic, right, response. And the, uh, the Chan Master says, the essence of enlightenment is an appropriate response. And I think this is super relevant for where we are today, right? The practice can seem really self-centered, right? You know, what are you doing there with your eyes closed, being quiet, looking inward? We're learning how to be more present and balanced and sane so that we can respond appropriately to what's coming. And so this is what I want to explore tonight. There's a lot that can be said about this, so... I'm just going to give you an overview of one um, one aspect of of the path here. Um, so, how do we respond when things change, especially stressful, unwanted changes? Right, because when things change for the better, we're all about it. Right, <laughs> when you get a new job or a new relationship or like you win something, it's like great. I love change. This is awesome. <laughs> or when when something changes from unpleasant to pleasant, we really like that too. Right? Like if you're sick and you get healthy, it's like, great. We really like change when something that that's hurting goes away. So it's useful just to contemplate change and realize there's some kinds of changes that we really enjoy. It's when the pleasant things go away that we don't like change. Or when unpleasant things come that we don't like change. So um, I had the, um, the good fortune and also the privilege of growing up uh, with, a, with, with both, both of my parents um, in a pretty stable environment. My dad had a job. Um, we had enough food to eat. My mom, my dad was able to earn enough that my mom helped take care of my brother and I for a period of time before she went back to work. Um, we lived in a relatively safe neighborhood in New Jersey, here in Teaneck, and then in South Orange. So um, lots of privilege, lots of really good fortune to have those circumstances. And uh, when I was about 10 or 11, one of my family members got sick and started struggling with a lot of mental illness. Um, hearing voices, suicidal, in and out of mental hospitals, really, really frightening for me as a 10, 11-year-old. Change. Things changed pretty drastically in, in our household. And there's a lot of stress um, a lot of volatile emotions, people yelling, screaming, a lot of fear. And so my response to change, uh, that kinds of change, the disappearance of stability, 
the appearance of a lot of um, fear and unpleasant emotions um, was to keep busy, was to do more, was to perform really well, right? So get straight A's, be the perfect kid, don't make any waves. That was, that was my coping strategy. And it worked. It worked for, for a time being um, till I was about 18, going to school here uptown. Um, things started to kind of fall apart. All of the stress and the anxiety that I had been repressing caught, started to catch up with me. So how do we respond when, when there's unwelcome change, right? What are our strategies? <clears throat> we all have ways of coping, and some of them are healthier than others. Some of them are more or less adaptive. You know, there's the, there's the avoid it, right? Distract ourselves, keep busy in some way. We get addicted to work or trying to perform like I did. Or we seek comfort is another really common response to stressful change, we seek something to fill us up. Sometimes can lead to addiction. Um, sometimes we seek oblivion, right? just kind of numbing out, forgetting. Or we freeze, we just, we just kind of go into overwhelm. Or we sink. Sometimes we go, we go down with it. We move into despair or, dis or depression which is different from mourning, it's different from healthy grieving. We actually get lost in it, right? So what is our meditation practice and, and this, this whole contemplative path, which is much more than actually just silent meditation, what does it have to teach us? What does it have to offer when the ground falls out beneath us, when we lose that stability or comfort that we've known? When things get scary, uncertain, when they're unwelcome changes, which is inevitable, right? This is the nature of the world. We live in a world of change in a sensitive body with a sensitive heart, right? That's the nature of this existence is that we feel things. Right? Things impact us. Sights impact us, sounds impact us, smells impact us. Weather impacts us. And perhaps most deeply, the heart and the mind, the kinds of meanings and perceptions of our lives impact us. I'm a failure. Ooh, that one's heavy. I'm no good. I'm not adequate. No one loves me. I'm all alone. That's where the real pain is, in the heart, when things change, when we don't get what we want. I'm sensitive. So we try to protect ourselves against those meanings and those changes, because it hurts. But as we learn, if you're in this room, you've learned that what the world has to offer to protect us just doesn't cut it, right? It works for a little while, but the pain comes back, the uncertainty comes back, the instability comes back because it's the nature of things. So this path offers a different kind of protection for the heart, one that's more reliable, one that's more sustainable. And I want to talk about this in three different ways tonight, three, three um, kinds of protection that the path offers. If we don't have protection, life breaks us. And I think we all, we all know 
somebody or have met somebody who's been broken by life, hasn't been able to handle the pain of change, of loss, of hardship, and has become bitter or numb or stuck, frozen, and how hard it is, how sad it is to see that, right? And the opposite, how beautiful it is when we meet someone or read about people who've been able to respond to change with resilience, with that capacity to bounce back, to not be defined by the content of our experience or the losses we have, but actually to make something beautiful out of it. How inspiring and uplifting that is. So what are these ways, what are these protections that, the, that our, our practice and this path has to offer? <clears throat> so the first is the whole foundation of this practice, and that's leaning into our goodness. It's recognizing the value of living an ethical life and having a sense of integrity. This is a protection against change. That we can rely on our own heart's goodness. And in some ways this is natural. Right? How do we respond to change? Well, look at what happened here in New York when 9-11 occurred. Right? This outpouring of goodness. Or when there's a natural disaster how the donations flood in. There's that sense of responding to pain and change with love, with care. This is part of our nature as human beings. And there's a key insight that we have in this practice as we, as we meditate, as we quiet the mind, the things that we've done that have caused harm to others come back. I was just teaching a retreat out in California and one of the participants we were talking and she was saying how do you you know how do you deal with it when all of those awful things that you've done or said come back and I was saying you feel it that's part of the path it's progress it's a really good thing it means you're emptying your heart out and connecting with your own goodness because when we feel that pain of having hurt someone, we understand something. We understand that our actions have effects and that we can't take it back. We can't take back those words that we said. We can't take back that thing that we did. And so we start to learn, it hurts me too. I feel it also. And so we start to live with more care, with more sensitivity, with more concern. It's said that there are two guardians in this world, in the Buddhist uh, mythology. And those guardians are care and concern. Care for our own sense of integrity and dignity and concern for the welfare of others. This is that ethical sensitivity, being in touch with our own goodness. This is a primary kind of protection a primary source of resilience with change is knowing our own goodness, being able to look ourselves in the mirror and smile, right? Because we know that regardless of what's happening, which is really not in our control, that what we're putting out is trying to bring more light and love. That's going to be a place of safety inside. I think about some of the way that youth are leading in these times, whether it's the, the Parkland youth after the shooting, right? Leaning into their goodness, to that ethical sense, or the, the kind of the, the wave that Greta Thunberg is riding, becoming this icon and this voice for sanity in response to climate change. Right? 
demanding that governments and elected officials and the media wake up to the truth and actually respond. So, um, a doctor by the name of Paul Farmer, um, who started working in Haiti many years ago, and he was criticized because he would walk for hours and hours to uh, make house calls, and people would say, you're wasting your time, it's not practical, you know, to walk that long to just meet with one family. There's a book that's written about him called Mountains Beyond Mountains. It's a very powerful book. I want to read a quote to you about, about him. Here's an influential anthropologist, a medical diplomat, a public health administrator, epidemiologist who has helped to bring new resolve and hope to some of the world's most dreadful problems and he's just spent seven hours making house calls in the mountains. How many desperate families live in Haiti? He's made this trip to visit too. And I can imagine Paul Farmer saying he doesn't care if no one else is willing to follow their example. He's still going to make these hikes. He'd insist because if you say that seven hours is too long to walk for two families of patients, you're saying that their lives matter less than some others. And the idea that some lives matter less is the root of all that's wrong with the world. He has an organization today called Partners in Health that you can donate to that brings medical care to uh, uh, communities in Haiti and Africa and Central America to those most in need. So the foundation of this path is our, our goodness. That sense that we're connected and that what we do and say matters and that we can help, that we can help each other. This is called sila, the beauty of integrity. And this is the foundation of this whole practice. It's the foundation and it's the fruit, it's the result. We'll come, we'll come back there at the end. So the next, uh, the next protection for the heart. Actually, before I move on to that, I want to say one more thing about, about sila, just kind of to expand that. It's the, it's the ethical, it's the way that we live ethically, but within that, I also want to include the beautiful qualities that, that we cultivate on this path. Qualities like kindness and compassion, really developing um, healthy mind states. These are tremendous protections for change. All right, so... I went to school here for four years, four and a half years, took me a little longer. Um, so I lived in New York, so I know what it's like. Um, so there's plenty that to irritate the, the body and the mind, right, here in New York. And so we know that experience of whatever it is, um, whether it's a smell or a sound or um, a sight that is stimulating frustration, annoyance, reactivity, anger, okay, in the heart and the mind on a daily basis. We all have days though, right, where something comes in through our senses that would ordinarily stimulate some frustration or anger and instead the response is, you know, I hope you have a good day, right? We're like, wow, they're really having a hard day today. I hope it gets better. How much better does that feel, right, than the pettiness, than the vengefulness, than the helplessness and rage that we can experience when we live in a big city and there's so much out of our control? So kindness and compassion protect the heart. They protect the heart from falling into those places of reactivity. So this too is part of our goodness and is a protection against 
painful change in life. So the next aspect of the path that helps, helps us to respond to change, that helps us to have resilience with change, is part of our meditation practice. The part of our meditation practice that's about steadying and calming our mind. So this is sometimes called concentration meditation. It's a kind of seclusion where we rest inwardly. And this was how we started the guided meditation this evening is choose one thing, your, your breath, hearing, your butt on the chair, your hands in your lap. Could be a, a phrase like a loving kindness phrase. Choose one thing and just keep coming back to it. Anything else that comes up to distract you, just let it go. Set it aside. Just ignore it. Just come back. When we do that over and over and over and over and over again, we start to develop a little bit of stability. We gather our energy and start to be able to rest a little bit, to unwind, to settle. And this is really nourishing. This is how this is a way that we can recharge a much healthier way of recharging than what our what our culture tries to sell us, which is more caffeine and entertainment and distraction. So there's a certain aspect of resilience that's about just nourishing our spirit and our body and learning to rest not just numbing, but actually resting. Like when you're thirsty and you drink a glass of water, that's satisfying. When we're tired, when we're stressed, when you've been out all day and you come home, being able to, to settle the mind, actually I would say it this way, being able to allow the mind to settle because it's a natural process. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh uses the analogy of having a glass of apple juice with pulp in it. And if you take that glass of apple juice and you set it on the counter and you leave it there for half an hour, the pulp settles and you're left with clear, clean juice. It's the same with our mind. If we just put it down somewhere and give it a little bit of containment and don't mess around with it too much, it will settle on its own. I want to read you a a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh about the, the power of this, this calming, this settling for the times that we're living in. And this was written in the 1980s, so the content is a little bit different, but I think that it will translate quite directly to what we're living through today. Many of us worry about the world situation. We don't know when the bombs will explode. We feel that we are on the edge of time. As individuals, we feel helpless, despairing. The situation is so dangerous. Injustice is so widespread. The danger is close. In this kind of situation, if we panic, things will only become worse. We need to remain calm to see clearly. Meditation is to be aware and to try to help. I like to use the example of a small boat crossing the Gulf of Siam. In Vietnam, there are many people who are called boat people who leave the country in small boats. Often the boats are caught in rough seas or storms and the people may panic. Boats can sink. But if even one person Aboard can remain calm, lucid, knowing what to do and what not to do. He or she can help the boat survive. His or her expression, their face, their voice, communicates clarity and awareness, clarity and calmness, and people have trust in that person. They will listen to what he or she says. One such person can save the lives of many. Our world is something like a small boat. 
compared with the cosmos, our planet is a very small boat. We are about to panic because our situation is no better than the situation of the small boat in the sea. Humankind has become a very dangerous species. We need people who can sit still and be able to smile, who can walk peacefully. We need people like that in order to save us. The Dharma says that you are that person, that each of us is that person. So the sense of calming is an essential skill for times of change and crisis. We need people who can stay calm, who aren't going to panic. And so that's what we're studying here in part. It's not the whole thing, it's part. We're learning how to connect with this body, how to feel the nervous system, and how to be with that jangled feeling inside. That's everywhere, right? We all feel it. Every day there's that, oh shit, right? And some of it's personal, and some of it's not. Some of it's what we're living through these times. There's that sense of uncertainty, ill at ease, not knowing, being at the edge of something. Don't run from that. Breathe with it. Learn to steady yourself in those uncertain waters, because that's what's needed. So each of us is carrying something so precious in this body. Love and awareness. Those are the tools that we have to heal the world, to respond to change. We need to take care of them. Because there's a lot of panic, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of uncertainty flying around. There's a lot of hatred flying around. So when we come to the cushion to sit, to breathe, we're doing essential work for change by laying a foundation of sanity. It's not the end, but it's the beginning. We have to start somewhere, right? So calming the heart and mind, learning to steady ourselves in that small boat, in the middle of the night, in the storm, that's part of our work. That's part of this path. Now, the danger here is if that's all we do, then we become part of the problem because we end up avoiding the situation. We become complicit. And this is the critique that has been leveled against secular mindfulness, one of the critiques. One of the critiques is that, well, secular mindfulness, because secular mindfulness often becomes construed to just this calming aspect. It leaves out the rest. It leaves out the ethics. That sense of integrity. There's no, there's no values framework. So there's, no, there's not that sense of the, the duty that we have to one another and to life to live from a place of care and concern. And if all we do is just keep calming and settling and stabilizing the mind, yeah, then we're just checking out. That's not good. So mindfulness practice can become distorted when it gets reduced to concentration meditation. If all we're doing is ignoring and excluding and avoiding everything else, then we're actually feeding the unhealthy desire to escape, to just shut it off, just make it stop, right? That's there. It's a very powerful urge. 
Some of it's wholesome. Some of it's about needing rest and space. We need that, like we need to sleep every night. The heart needs rest. It needs protection. But if we go too deep into it, we end up cutting off from the world. So the practice isn't about becoming comfortable. It's about recharging so that we can be with discomfort. One of my favorite quotes is from the Indian philosopher and teacher Krishnamurti who said, it is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. So if we use this practice to just feel a little bit more comfortable because now I can, you know, many of you know I, I have a, uh, meditations on the phone, on apps, 10% happier, um, uh, simple habit, calm, some of these. If all we're doing is just putting on our, you know, our app so that I can like zone out and not deal with the world, that's not helpful. That's becoming comfortable with a situation that's, increasingly untenable in terms of income inequality, the refugee crisis, right? There's real need here. So we lean into that foundation of goodness. There's a need to respond. We use the calming to stay sane, to nourish ourselves so that we don't burn out, so that we don't get fried, right? Because then we're no good to anyone if we're just overwhelmed and flooded all the time. We need to have some way of resourcing. And there are lots of ways of resourcing. Let's be real about it. Meditation is just one. But if you're in this room, it's one that you've chosen or that you're exploring. So the calming, the settling of the mind is always in the service of seeing clearly. Thich Nhat Hanh says, we need to remain calm and to see clearly. So that calming is in the service of insight. And this is the third, this is the third protection that I want to mention. So there's our goodness, the sense of living with integrity, cultivating the heart. There's calming the mind, steadying, being able to nourish ourselves, to not get flooded or fried by what's happening. And then there's insight, seeing clearly. Again, Thich Nhat Hanh, meditation is to be aware and to help. So we see clearly so that we can respond. So what is insight? It's called insight meditation. This is New York insight, right? What is insight? So one of the analogies that I like to use um, is think about uh, like a, having a telescope. If you have a telescope, you can see the moon, the stars, depending on how powerful that telescope is. But the first thing that you need to do when you use a telescope is to set up the tripod to get it stable. If it's not stable and you look through it, you're not going to see anything, right? Because it's just going to be wobbling. If you've ever looked through a pair of binoculars or a microscope, it's the same thing, right? Any kind of magnification, if it's not steady, when you look through it, you can't see anything because everything's shaking. It's the same with the heart-mind. If it's not steady, we can't see clearly. So the calming, the stabilizing practice Coming back to the breath, coming back to the breath, coming back to the breath. It nourishes us and it sets up the foundation for looking more deeply to see clearly what's actually happening. What's happening inside? What's happening outside? And some of the problems that we're facing as a society and as a species are due to not seeing clearly, not being willing to look or see clearly, right? Like we've known about CO2 since, I don't know if it was the 70s or even earlier, the first scientist who was doing experiments with uh, monitoring temperatures in Hawaii and doing ice cores and started to notice the changes that were happening. And the science was ignored for like two generations, right? Ignoring the truth 
rather than seeing it and and accepting it. So insight is uh, is wisdom. The the two words in in uh, in Pali have the same root. The same root of the word knowledge or to know in English, gnosis, knowledge. Same root as the word for insight or wisdom, panya or jnana in Pali. So there, um, there are different kinds of wisdom that we, that we gain in this practice. Sometimes it's talked about as three different kinds of wisdom. So I want to talk about the different kinds of wisdom and some of the kinds of insight that we have that can protect our heart and be a resource for us in change. So the first kind of wisdom that we develop is the wisdom from hearing the teachings. So right now, sitting and listening, uh, if you listen to podcasts or Dharma talks, if you read a Dharma book, when we read something, when we hear something, and it makes sense to us, it's a certain kind of wisdom. We get an idea intellectually. So this is the first layer of wisdom, is it's having a cognitive and intellectual understanding of the teachings and the particular, uh, their particular take on life and on being human. The next kind of wisdom goes a little bit deeper. So we hear something and then we reflect on it. We actually turn it over inside. We're like, well... Oh, is that true? How is it for me? What's my experience been? Does that match? And we, 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 we chew on it, maybe for a few days. We kind of compare it to our life experiences. We start to come to a more reflective understanding of the teachings. It's not, not just making sense intellectually, but we've actually thought about it. This is a deeper kind of wisdom. Wisdom that comes from reflection. Then the deepest kind of wisdom, the third kind of wisdom, is that is wisdom that comes from meditation, from cultivation, from actually experiencing firsthand the kinds of things that the teachings are pointing to. It's no longer just something that we've thought about that makes sense, that we believe, that we say, yeah, that feels right, that sounds true, but we've actually seen it directly for ourselves. This is the deepest kind of wisdom that's transformative. So what are the kinds of insights we can have and how do they help us respond to change? So I like to talk about different layers of insight. This is not canonical. This is not in the, uh, in the teachings per se, but this has been my experience and it makes sense to me. So sometimes we have personal insights. We meditate, we sit down, we're with our experience, and we, we come to realize certain things just about how we're doing. Like, wow, I didn't realize I was so angry about that. Or wow, I've been feeling really sad. I have a lot of grief over what happened that I, didn't even, I wasn't even aware of. So this is a kind of personal insight into just how we're doing. Sometimes we have psychological insights. We might have an insight into a certain way that, that our mind functions, our personality functions. I was just talking with someone on a retreat, the retreat I just taught in Pennsylvania. Um, who was saying she realized that um, all of her attempts to, to fix and help her daughter's anxiety was about her own discomfort with her daughter's suffering. She was always so focused on helping and fixing and supporting her daughter, she had never seen that she was really anxious and uncomfortable, that she was having difficulty with the pain her child was experiencing. This is a kind of insight, certain understanding about one's own psychology and patterning. We can have insight that's more about our social conditioning. So for me, as, um, as a Jewish white male, 
have been certain insights that I've had over the years about what it is to live in this body, in this society. I remember the first time I uh, saw some of the internalized sexism that I have. I was co-teaching with another woman um, who uh, made a certain point, and I didn't feel like she made the point kind of firmly enough, so I restated it. So if you're a woman, you're very familiar with this. <laughs> what I noticed was that as I was speaking, I noticed the, the perception, the interpretation that a deeper voice carried more weight in the room. And that because she said it, because she had a female voice that was higher in pitch, it didn't carry the same weight. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh my God, look at that. Look at that conditioning. So that's a kind of insight. It's not personal. It's a social insight into how I've been conditioned based on our society. And similar insights into what it is to have white privilege, to live in this society, and to see the ways that I get, I get away with things because of the color of my skin, or have a certain entitlement. Like when I talk to someone... Um, uh, like a, con a train conductor, and I'm wanting like them to make an exception. How I there's this expectation that I should be able to bend the rules, right? And becoming aware of that as a certain social conditioning. So this is another kind of insight that we can have. Remember, meditation practice is about seeing clearly what's happening. How is the mind functioning? How is it relating and interacting? When we really look, we start to actually understand what's happening. So the deepest kind of insight is insight into the nature of our lives. So an insight is, is a truth, a deep truth that's not personal. It's a truth that, that's shared by all living creatures. Humans, birds, squirrels, spiders. That's this, this is the deepest kind of insight that we can have, insight into the way things are rather than how we think it should be, insight into the nature of reality rather than our ideas or beliefs or opinions about life. So the process of insight in this way is a process of revealing the assumptions and the filters through which we experience the world that are actually not accurate. So we see this, this is occurring all the time, we just don't see it. Like when we meditate and there's some sound that we think shouldn't be there. Why not? Who said so? We start labeling it, thinking, why is that siren still going off? The siren is an interpretation. The reality is it's just sound. If it were a bird, we would, it would be fine. So we start to see the, the mistaken ideas that we have about the way things should be, the filters that are actually not accurate. And classically in the practice, there are three of these that we come to see. So the first is the truth of change. We start to realize that we have an expectation that things shouldn't change, even though we all know that that's not true, that that's not the way it is. Everything that comes into being eventually disintegrates and passes away. When we come to see change more clearly, it shifts how we live our life. We start to see through the filter of permanence, the expectation we have that things don't change. So I remember the first insight I had into the impermanence of emotions. I was driving in a car, feeling anxious about something. I don't even remember what. And then, but I was being mindful. So I was aware that I was feeling anxious. 
you're trying to pay attention to it. It's like, okay, this is anxiety. Let me just see if I can just feel this. And then my mind wandered somewhere, started thinking about something else, and then it wandered somewhere else, and then it wandered somewhere else. And then eventually I became aware again. I was still driving, became aware again, and then I realized the anxiety's gone. And in that moment, because I had been mindful of the anxiety before and really felt it, it was like magic. It was like, whoa, it vanished. It's not here. And that was the beginning of starting to actually open to feeling some of the anxiety and the fear and the pain that I had been carrying from growing up with a mentally ill family member that I had been repressing for so long. As soon as I started to see, oh, those emotions are changing, it, it gave me the space to start to feel them because they weren't so frightening anymore. Because I knew directly, okay, I can feel this because it's going to change. It's not going to be here forever. Because everything's changing, they're not, it's not reliable. It's unstable. This is an insight into what's called dukkha the unreliable nature of things. And the expectation we have that everything should work, things should run on schedule, that they shouldn't break, that it should go according to plan, that our expectations should be fulfilled, right? This is, this is a, an assumption that's actually, where's that come from? <laughs> Right? Like things break all the time. They don't work out. Our expectations are meant. That's the way it is. Right? The train is late. You miss the bus. The meal is not what you thought it would be. Someone gets sick. The relationship doesn't work out. That's the truth. But we don't like it. We, we expect it to be different, and then we suffer. This practice is about coming to see things the way they are, rather than how we want them to be. And learning to, when we do that, something shifts. When we start to have insight into change, into the unreliable nature of things, and then eventually into the impersonal nature of life. That things aren't up to us, that we're not in control. This is the other illusion that we walk around with, that somehow I should be able to control things, outside and in. And we all know it's not true, but yet we operate from that assumption. Because when we can't control things, we get really upset. So clearly there's something inside that believes I should be able to control this body, how it ages, this mind, this heart, how I feel, what I think. Have you noticed it doesn't work? So insight is seeing this clearly, seeing clearly that life isn't personal, it's just changing. Everything is just changing all the time. If you just sit down for a minute and observe your mind and body closely, you will see that everything is changing every moment. Thoughts, sensations, sounds, emotions. It's just this incessant flow of change, and we're not in control. It's not up to us. As we start to experience this more directly, more clearly, it changes how we live. We're not struggling as much. We're not fighting against the way things are. We're able to live in harmony with it, in flow with it. So one of the great misunderstandings about this practice is that it's just about accepting everything the way it is. The acceptance is a momentary relationship to our direct experience because in the moment, this is the way it is. And when we resist it, we suffer. But once we accept it, once we accept the truth, once we see it clearly and accept it, now we have the ability to respond. Once we acknowledge that the economic system is not set up to meet human needs and is actually 
concentrating and limiting resources rather than sharing them. Once we accept that, now we can respond. So insight supports us to have more equanimity, to have more balance in life. When we're seeing clearly and balanced, that becomes a foundation for responding. Once we accept the way things are, the next question is, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to respond? I want to end with a, a story from the Buddhist texts. A story, this is 2,600 years old, of uh, a mother who lost her, um, her husband and then um, one of her children. And she was overcome with grief. She couldn't bear it. And uh, she heard about the Buddha, that he was uh, um, a healer and a great enlightened being who could take away suffering, who could end suffering. And so she went to him and she said, you have to bring my son back. I can't bear it. I can't live. And he said to her, okay, but first I want you to go to the village and I want you to bring me, I just need one thing and then I'll bring your son back. Bring me a mustard seed from a house that hasn't been touched by death. So she said, okay. So she went to the first house and she said, please, please, I need, I need, a, I need a mustard seed. The Buddha's going to bring my son back. And they said, sure, of course. And she says, oh, no, wait, but I need to make sure that no one in your family has died. And they said, oh, I'm so sorry. Our uncle just passed away. So she went to the next house and the next house and the next house. And of course, every house had been touched by death. And eventually she realized this is the nature of things. She came back to the Buddha and she said, I understand. And she ended up becoming a follower of the Buddha and actually realizing awakening. When we see clearly, we stop fighting the way things are. And we can actually get about living our lives and responding to what's needed. And this is the reliable protection, our own goodness. The love in our hearts. the ability to nourish ourselves, to slow down, and, and wisdom, the wisdom of insight that lets us see clearly what's happening instead of getting lost in delusion. Everything in our society is telling us that comfort is more important than the truth. And it's, it's our duty and our great privilege to live otherwise. So thank you so much for your kind attention. And we have some time uh, for a few, um, a few short questions. If you have a question about the talk or about your, your practice, I invite you to raise your hand and we'll get a microphone over to you so folks can hear the question. Yeah, Tushar. Thank you, Oren. Your intention and your teachings were very, very present and very felt, so gratitude for that. Uh, so I have a question about so seeing clearly the awareness and how does that connect with morality? Yeah. And how does meditation play into it? Sure. And how, where is the training for morality? Because I go to different meditation yes. groups and uh, it's not talked very often about. Yeah. I mean, I, I heard a lot of emphasis on it in Daniel Ingram's book. Yeah. And personally, I do agree with it. But I want to know, how does awareness, morality, yeah. and sure. meditation play into it? Sure, thank you. So, um, so just to name, so these three protections, I'm talking about morality, 
concentration and is and wisdom. This is a summary of the Buddha's path, sila samadhi panya. So for those of you who have studied, so the sila, the morality part, is the foundation. The practice of the morality is the um, uh, the essence is non-harming, non-violence, ahimsa. So living with the intention to not cause harm, this is the essence of it. And then that takes the form, the structure, the practice for lay people is living with the five precepts. So to not take the life of other living creatures, to not uh, steal or possess um, things that uh, haven't been freely offered, uh, to live in a way where there's enough for everyone, to not cause harm with our sexual energy, with our speech, and to not take intoxicants that cloud our judgment. So living with the five precepts is a way of, of realizing um, sila and morality. And that feeds into the meditation practice in, in many, many ways. Um, the practice of morality uh, keeps the heart light. When we cause harm, it disturbs the mind. Uh, in multiple ways, there's, the, there's the, the pain of remorse, but there's also the agitation uh, to cause harm, to steal something, to hurt something, to hurt someone, to say something, always comes from an intention um, that's, that's characterized by a certain, um, uh, both, both delusion and a certain kind of unpleasantness. And so those energies um, disturb the mind. So when we're acting in a way that's causing harm, the mind is disturbed, and then those energies reverberate internally, and that hinders the meditation. When we're living with non-harming, uh, those energies get attenuated, and the mind becomes more peaceful in and of itself, and then that supports the meditation. That's, that's one of the main ways. There are other ways as well, just the process of bringing attention to our actions and our words deepens mindfulness and concentration in daily life, which then feeds into the meditation. Yeah. And then the more we have insight, the more, the more insight and wisdom there is, the natural expression of that is compassion and care because we, we sense our vulnerability. The more I understand the vulnerability of my own life, the truth of change and unreliability and the impersonal nature of things, the more I see that everywhere and then naturally treat others with more um, respect and care. Yeah, thank you, a very important question. It's important, I appreciate the opportunity to make that connection. This is perhaps this uh, uh, woman in the back row. Uh, could we hear from a, maybe the woman, since we already heard from a man, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Is it on? Okay. Um, so I have a question about desire I, and wanting and how that, how that works because it seems like you can't desire anything and in this practice. Not true. Okay, maybe that's just what I think. Yeah, no, it's a common misunderstanding. Okay, well, I always think it's wrong to desire something very strongly. And how do you, like, I guess, cope with that feeling? Yeah. Um, Thank you. Yeah, it's an important question. There are different kinds of desire. Many, many words for desire in the, in the Pali language in the Buddhist text. So the kind of desire that, is, that causes suffering is called tanha, which means thirst or craving. It's a kind of desire that's self-centered, that's about consuming and, and possessing something. So and it has a certain quality of, of compulsiveness and contraction to it uh, and attention in it. And this is different from the kind of desire that's called chanda or dhamma chanda, which is um, a healthy desire like the desire to learn, the desire to grow, to heal, to help, uh, to awaken, to comfort, to hold, to soothe, to love. These are very healthy kinds of desire. So desire is a movement in the heart. It's a movement. And the question is, where, where is the movement coming from? What's the, what's the root of it? So this is what we need to study, is to see where are our impulses coming from? Are they coming from greed, hate, and delusion? Are they coming from a place of self-centeredness? 
and and that that impulse to um, uh, fill us up in a kind of compulsive way, or are they coming from uh, wisdom and love and clarity? What if it's both? It often is. It's mixed. We're we're complex complex creatures, so that's it's important to be really honest with ourselves and to see both. And then you want to lean into the, the healthier side of it and be as mindful as you can about the unhealthy side. So let's take something really simple like wanting to have um, an ice cream or a sweet, right? So there's that, there's that kind of like um, craving of like, I want something sweet. Like I just want something sweet. But then there's another part that's maybe about like, it's been a stressful day. I want to, like, I want some nourishment, right? So the first, so the practice here is not to say like, you can't have it. No, like that's bad. The practice is to become mindful and observe, feel into both of those energies and then pay attention to what happens. Try to lean into the healthier desire that says, like, I really want to, like, relax. I want something that's going to feel nourishing and soothing. And then stay with that and see, okay, what's going to actually meet that? And then it's like, yeah, I want some ice cream. <laughs> it's like, okay. So then when you eat the ice cream, be really present to it. Notice how the arising of the greed actually takes away from the ability to be nourished and soothed because it's that compulsive, like, I want more, I want more, and we're not actually in the moment. It's really, really um, powerful investigation. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So unfortunately, my friends, uh, we're out of time because I went on and on, even though I wanted to leave more time for questions. Um, so uh, if anyone has a burning question, I'll hang out for a little bit and uh, you can stay and, and chat. If you didn't get a chance to check out um, some of the materials on the back table, I um, uh, invite you to, to stop by there and check them out on your way out. And uh, if you don't want more emails in your inbox, but you want to stay in touch, I'm also on various social media channels. So you can uh, find me at Orange Sofer on your, your favorite social media feed. So let's just um, take a moment to sit quietly. Just a very brief, very brief moment. May the goodness of our coming together tonight and our practice be in the service of developing the resilience to respond skillfully and appropriately to the deep need in the world. Thank you so much for your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.